0: Well, let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you, yearning and needing to know you, whom to know aright is life eternal. We would worship you in spirit and in truth, such worship as pleases you, such worship as you seek. Exalt yourself to us in dazzling our minds, with the revelation of yourself and in winning our hearts to you in ardent love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you've been here at least the 11 years I've been here, you've often heard me say that the truth of the Trinity is woven into the whole Bible, that you see it everywhere you look, really, particularly in the New Testament, as it's revealed in the full uh, broad daytime light of the incarnation of Christ. Um, But I have thought that I would show you some of what I've talked about. We've seen it here and there, but we're looking at it more closely in a more focused way now. Uh, In the last two weeks, we looked at the nature of God and the uh, oneness of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, we introduced, But uh, now we've begun looking at the works and the glories of the Trinity in Scripture. So I say um, very um, sincerely, if you missed either of the last two sermons, I really encourage you to find them at certain Sermon Audio and to listen to them. They're very important. Uh, foundations for what we 're looking at today, last week, we just began looking at the glories of the Trinity, and we continue with that today and I mean to conclude it today so let 's recap a little bit first of all, just a brief review of what we looked at before the biblical core of this doctrine, this doctrine which uh, dazzles and overloads the mind, but which is clearly revealed in scripture. We looked first at god 's essence, in other words, for essence, his essence are his nature or His being, or His attributes, or His perfections. It's not like essence is just some sort of an ethereal substance. To say, it is to say what God is. And what God is, is He's holy. He's love. He's light. He's wisdom. He's sovereign. All these things, all these perfections, this is the essence of God. It is what God is. So if you ask the question, what is God? You describe Him that way. He is spirit. And then you just list off what the scripture says as to his uh, glorious perfections. And there is only one essence, only one God, only one God who is all of these things. And all of these that God is, he is all at once, all the time, and all he does. These are not, as I showed you, little duplex, duplo uh, blocks that are joined together. God is love, God is light not part love, not part life. And he is that all the time. So the belief that there is just one God as to his essence is called monotheism. Henotheism is the belief that, well, we've got one God, but there are other gods. But our belief is, no, there's only one God. The God we worship is the only God there is, one as to his essence. But as to his persons, letter B, the Bible states that he is three, states very clearly the Bible calls three persons God. The Bible calls the Father God, calls the Son God, calls the Holy Spirit God. And I gave you some of the verses there. We looked at them last week. So in this one essence subsist three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, eternally so. And each of the persons subsists in the one essence so everything that is true of God as God is true of the Father, is true of the Son, is true of the Holy Spirit. They're not three parts of God. They are three persons in the one essence of God. So I very briefly touched on the edges, or a better word might be the guardrails of this truth, that if we go past those rails, we're going off into error and heresy. Uh, God is not one person. God is one essence but he's three persons. So God is not uh, one person existing in three modes or acting in three roles or showing himself in three manifestations. There is an orthodox use of the word mode, but not as an existence of the one person. And this is the error that's called modalism. Or uh, oneness theology, Uh, the United Presbyterian Church International and a whole lot of just individual crackpot types have held to this, uh, hold to this now and have through church history. Uh, So you listen carefully. Is somebody affirming that God is three persons and is eternally three persons or does he use wiggle words like shows himself as or acts as or reveals himself as? This can indicate that the person is a heretic. Uh, Further, uh, God is not three gods. He is not a triad. He's a trinity. He's not three separate gods. Don't picture three lemonade stands. There's not three lemonade stands. There's only the one God. Trinitarian means triunity, three in one. Three in one way, one in another, and so eternally, because one of the attributes of God is he doesn't change. So if a person ever weren't God, he never will be. And if he ever was, he always will be. This is the attribute of God of immutability, of unchangeableness. So he's eternally one in one way and three in another way. One what, three who's. Eternally one essence, eternally three persons. And so this is called Trinitarian monotheism. Three as to the persons, one as to the essence. Only one God eternally existing, subsisting in three persons. So that's just an outline, and that seems very quick. Well, last week's sermon was about that, and the previous week was about the essence of God. So we began looking at the glories of this truth, and uh, what we see here is we see, although some of the works of God May particularly feature one of the persons of the Godhead. Godhead just means the deity, that's all that means. It's not a magic word, so it's another word for God. But one work may, may particularly feature one of the persons of the Trinity, but not to the exclusion of the other persons of the Trinity. It's very simple to understand that. You just say that what the Father does, God does. What the Son does, God does. What the Spirit does, God does. And there are three persons subsisting in that one essence. So I began showing you that last week. Who who do you think of as having created? You might think God the Father. Uh, the confession of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. But I showed you in Scripture that the Holy Spirit also had a role in creation. God the Son also had a role in creation. God created heaven and earth. And now we begin looking at some of the other uh, glorious passages that show the Trinity and the great works of, uh, of God's plan for history. Creation is Trinitarian. We saw it last week and now I'd like you to see that uh, Providence is Trinitarian. Providence, P-R-O-V-I-D are the letters that go in that blank. Providence is Trinitarian. And unless you have a photographic memory, I do encourage you to jot down the verses and fill in the blanks. Providence is Trinitarian. Well, what is providence? Maybe not everybody knows that word. Providence is how God sovereignly oversees all of the events of creation. God did not create and then just let it spin off on its own. Uh, in fact, there are no parts of the universe that exist on their own apart from the sovereign guidance of God. So I, in this case, I'm just going to read you these scriptures. We'll be looking at some of the others more closely. But Matthew 10, Jesus says, "...are not two sparrows sold for an Asarion? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father." Matthew 10, 29. So he takes this one little insignificant creature, this little flitting bird, and he says, even the death of a bird is under the sovereign guidance of your father. Like the hairs of your head are numbered, he says in the same context. So uh, not just the, the grand things such as the movements of universes and the rise and fall of kingdoms, but even a little nothing event like the fall of a little insignificant bird that's under the sovereign guidance of your father but colossians 1:17 speaking of the son paul says that he is before all things and in him all things hold together or i would translate that cohere the lord jesus is what calls what holds everything together So you've thought of all those atoms and all those molecules and wondered why they don't all dissolve and roll out just like balls on the floor without a floor because the floor is molecules too. So what holds them together in the forms that they have? And this verse answers that question. It's the Lord Jesus that holds them together. And so if he holds all things together, then obviously there are no rogue, maverick, or random atoms in the universe. There's nothing spinning off on its own. As we've seen, the idea that God turns off his sovereignty here and there is absurd. That's the same as to say that God stops being God here and there. Sovereign is who he is. He can't stop being sovereign. Were he to do that, then all would be chaos. And it actually is unimaginable because it's unimaginable that God would stop being God. In Jesus, all things cohere, whether uh, the atoms of that little bird that falls or the atoms of the loud-mouthed, foul-tongued, chest-beating atheist, keyboard warrior, denying Jesus. Well, the fingers and the brain cells that he uses are all held together by Jesus Christ. And one day he's going to stand before that Jesus Christ who has held him together all his life and answer for what he did with the existence Jesus gave him. So all things hold together. Jesus controls providence. Uh, Hebrews 1.4 says the same, just no extra charge, that he carries all things by the word of his power. And then Psalm 104, verse 30 says, of the Holy Spirit, you send forth your spirit and they are created. You renew the face of the ground So the Holy Spirit is active in providence as well. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God rules all things. Providence is Trinitarian. Thirdly, the coming of Christ is Trinitarian. The coming of Christ is Trinitarian. Turn with me to Luke 135. I hope this sermon has lots of effects on you who are participating in it, learning from it that you revere God more, you love God more, you understand God better. But I also hope it has the effect that you'll read Scripture with your eyes open to this. And you'll start learning and noticing that in very familiar sections, where you'd never noticed before, you see the Trinity in a verse, in a passage, in a chapter. This is one where you see the Trinity in one verse. Luke 1.35 Mary asks, how can I have a baby since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. So God, the Holy Spirit, will quicken Mary's womb and the person in her womb will be a holy child, will be in fact a son Whose son will he be, the Son of God? So what do you see here? You see God, the Holy Spirit, God the Son, and God, the Father, all in one verse, and this is not particularly unusual. The coming of Christ is Trinitarian. So it's not like he left the Father and the Spirit and in heaven, in he- the Father and the Spirit in heaven and came to earth apart from them. His very coming is Trinitarian. And gloriously, the entire work of redemption is Trinitarian. Note down Galatians 4, verses 4 through 6, and turn there with me. Galatians 4, 4 and 6, 4 through 6. So Paul has a great meaning in stressing to these Christians in Galatia who were being uh, misled by Judaizers who were kind of reducing the coming of Christ to a... And then that happens. So let's go back to keeping the law of Moses. And uh, Paul is showing that, no, no, this is the climax. This is the hinge of history under the uh, guiding hand of God. Uh, Look at Galatians 4.4. But when the fullness of the time came... Now, that speaks of God's providential guidance of all the events of history. Jesus Christ came at exactly the moment that God the Father had determined He would come. Not a moment earlier, not a moment later. So all the rise and falls of kingdoms and all of the marriages of mankind, everything that needed to to transpire, came to fruition at the moment when God sent forth His Son in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son. So we have God the Father determining when the time was full. God the Son sent by the Father. He's born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So God the Father is the sender. God the Son comes, and He redeems those who are under the law. How does He do this? He does this by fulfilling the law as a human being. He does this by shedding His blood for those for whom He dies. This is the unique work of God the Son sent by God the Father. Redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. So verse 4 says His Son, and that's a way the Bible highlights Jesus' unique relationship with the Father. So some have tried to say, well, we're all sons of God. Not in this unique sense. If if you're a child of God, you're a child of God by, what does verse 5 say? Adoption. But Jesus is his son. Eternally his son. His son by eternal generation. No birthday to that relationship. It's an eternal relationship. That we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So there is God the Father, sending God the Son to redeem us, and God the Spirit in our hearts. And you'll often see Scripture referring to Him as the Spirit of God, or the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of His Son. Why do we see these things? Because the, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. The Father sends the Spirit. The Son sends the Spirit. And so he can be called the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ as he is here. So the Father sends his Son. The Son comes and redeems us. The Spirit comes and dwells in our hearts. So Christian, who saved you? Did God the Father save you? Did God the Son save you? Did God the Holy Spirit save you? God saved you. God saved you. And the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work together for our salvation. What a glory, what a glorious work this makes, the work of salvation. And just the more you understand how the Bible portrays it, the more pained you will be at the ways Christians find to make God's work of salvation a smaller thing and man's part in it a larger thing. But in the scriptural portrayal, all we are is slaves and rebels needing to be redeemed. The work of salvation is all the work of God. We are just blessed recipients of the gracious and magnificent work of the Blessed Trinity. So Galatians 4, 4 through 6. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 we're particularly going to focus on verses 3 through 14. And uh, of course, we have a casually two persons mentioned in verse uh, 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you know verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And perhaps you, you've noticed this cha- this section, verses 3 through 14, is about our blessings in the heavenly places. But have you noticed, unless you were here when we preached through Ephesians that it's a Trinitarian work of blessing, that this is a Trinitarian passage. In verses 3 through 6, Paul focuses on the Father's work in blessing us. In verses 7 through 12, he focuses on the Son's work in blessing us. In verses 13 and 14, he focuses on the Spirit's work in blessing us. And this is how God blesses the elect. So verses 3 through 6, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, "'who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing "'in the heavenly places in Christ, "'the Father, the Son, and the word spiritual. "'Just as He, who's that? "'God the Father, He chose us in Him,' or I translated it, "'chose us to be in Him before the foundation of the world, "'that we would be holy and blameless before Him in love.'" And when I preached that, I, I had a heading in my sermon titled, 14 Reasons Why Predestination Must Be Unconditional, as our statement of faith says. God does not, does not look forward to see who's going to choose Him so He can choose that person back. His saving us is not a result of our action, our being saved is a result of his action. And you see that very clearly in this verse. He chooses us. He doesn't allow us to choose ourselves. He chooses us to be in Christ, and he does it that we would be holy and blameless. So he chooses us as guilty, blameworthy rebels who would never do anything for ourselves if he didn't act first. He chooses us. He predestines us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. According to What? The agreement that He reached, reached with our free will? No, what does it say? The good pleasure of His will. To the praise of the glory we share with His grace? No, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He graciously bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, do you notice, though, that though this focuses on the work of the Father in electing us, we can't not talk about the Son, because He elects us to be in the Son. And though he's adopting us as sons, well, he does this through the Son, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And though he lavishes his grace on us, how does he do that? What does Paul say? He does that in the beloved one. All of our experience of God's grace is in Christ. So even there, he doesn't slice off the persons as if each were an independent agent. Each is a distinct actor, but God acts as God. So the Father elects us to be in Christ to the praise of the glory of the Father's grace. So he's mentioned how we know this grace in the beloved. How is it we come to know this grace? Verses 6 through 12, focus on that. Uh, Sorry, 7 through 12. In him, in whom? In Jesus. In him, we have the redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of His grace. Now, we'll pause there for a moment. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. But how many times have you heard well-meaning Trinitarian Christians in, in praying say, Heavenly Father, thank You for coming and dying for our sins. Well, do they mean that? I hope they don't because the Father didn't come and die for our sins. Amen. The Father sent His Son. It's, it's not the blood of God the Father that redeems me. It's not the blood of God the Holy Spirit that redeems me. The Father doesn't have blood. The Spirit doesn't have blood. The Son didn't have blood before His incarnation either. He took on human nature and was found in the likeness of a man. The Word became flesh, in part, that He might shed blood for God's elect. So uh, Acts 20:28 20, says the church is purchased with the blood of God because it is purchased with the blood of God incarnate. God the Son took on a human nature for us and for our salvation, as the Creed says. So, in Him, in the Son, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our transgressions, according to the riches of His grace. Uh, And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to the good pleasure which he purposed in him. Now, this is an interesting thing. In the section focusing on the Father, he has to talk about the Son. In the section focusing on the Son, well, he has to talk about the Father. Because whose will did the Son fulfill? Well, it was the will of the Father. And so this speaks of the mystery of His will, the Father's will, according to His good pleasure, which He, the Father, purposed in Christ. Uh, another reference to this, just hold your place here, but turn to Ephesians 3.11. And here Paul says that this revelation of, of God's mystery, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He, God the Father. So, when I translated it, I translated it something like this, uh, more literally, in accordance with the plan of the ages which he made in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The Father is characteristically, characteristically depicted as planning. He's characteristically depicted as planning And the Spirit and the Son act in accord with this plan. This plan He made in Christ Jesus. Not alone, but in conjunction with Christ Jesus. So, back to Ephesians chapter 1 then. This work in Christ was part of God's plan of the ages. And in Him, so verse 10, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on the earth. So, very literally, the Greek uh, verse, uh, Greek verb anakephaliosestai, to sum up or to head up all things in Christ. Christ will be head of all things. This is the plan of the Father. All will be under the headship of Christ. So, verse 11, in Him, Christ, we also have been made an inheritance, having been predestined by whom? God the Father, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. And if I have a theology that says that He works many things that way, I need to change my theology. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. To the end that we who first had hoped in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. We hoped in God the Son to the praise of the glory of God the Father. Uh, Verse uh, 13, then, uh, what of the Holy Spirit? Well, Paul turns there here. In Him, that is in Christ, you also, having listened to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And not just that, as we'll see uh, in a few moments, the Holy Spirit regenerates us according to the sovereign will of the Father, not according to our requests. The wind blows where it wishes. The Holy Spirit grants new life according to the counsel of God the Father. And having granted new life, I come to saving faith. And He seals me in the Son. A seal that no man can break. A seal that marks me as God's child. You as God's child if you've trusted in Christ. None can break that seal. The Holy Spirit doesn't give the seal. He is the seal. Who's going to break Him? Who's going to break God? He seals us. He's the Holy Spirit of promise because He was promised in the Old Testament, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance unto the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. So there you see it. Who saved you, Christian? God saved you. Did you help God save you? I'll wait for an answer. No, you did not. No, God saved you. Now did you did you repent? Did you believe? Yes, you did. Why did you? Because God saved you. This is how he saves us. His work of salvation, his plan of salvation leaves nothing to chance. And I mean that absolutely literally. It leaves nothing to chance. God will save his own. And so it's the work of God to save his own. So you think of Christians who are in constant fear of their salvation, constant fear of losing their salvation. Well, it's good to test ourselves. It's good to be earnest about clinging to Christ. But we should never lose sight of the fact that salvation is of the Lord. As uh, um, Jonah chapter 2 says, salvation is of the Lord. My salvation is a work of God. And that's why Paul can say in Romans 8, nobody's going to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It's the work of the triune Godhead to save each Christian. So now another passage that points us to this is Titus chapter 3. Turn there. Titus 3, now look at verses 4 through 7, and I do want to say again, this is not an exhaustive list. We're taking a whirlwind tour, and I've got to speed up a little bit. Titus 3, 4 through 7, Paul says, but when the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, well, here he's calling God the Father our Savior. He does that in this letter. He does it back in chapter 1, verse 3, the command of God our Savior. When the kindness and affection of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not by works which we did in righteousness, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. How many persons do we have so far? We have God the Savior, which is the Father. We have God the Holy Spirit. He regenerates us. He doesn't help us regenerate ourselves. He washes us in regenerating us, born of water and the Spirit. We, he renews us, the Holy Spirit does. And now, verse 6 Whom he, the Father, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, wait a minute. Who's the Savior? He says, God's our Savior, God the Father. And then he says, Jesus is our Savior. So our Savior. who is our Savior? Who is our Savior? God is our Savior. God the Father saves us. God the Son saves us. God the Holy Spirit regenerates us and cleanses us. Our salvation is a work of God and a magnificent work of God, the Holy Trinity. One more passage of the many we could turn to, and just to show you, it's so brief. Sometimes you could miss it if you blink, but boy, it's there. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter doesn't get two verses into his letter before he's mentioned the Trinity. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now I want you all to say those place names out loud together. No, I'll handle it. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as exiles, and then he names the lands therein: are in, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, which is to say, elect, same word, eklektos, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, there it is the work of the Father, the work of the Son, the work of the Spirit. The foreknowledge of God, which cannot possibly mean his knowledge of who will believe in him, it never is that in scripture it 's never his foreknowledge of things will do that help him figure out what he should do in response it 's his foreknowledge of people. God foreknows everything, so why mention foreknowledge of our salvation because the word means his previous is setting his love on us, his creating a relationship with us it 's like what Jesus says when he says. I know my sheep. What is he saying? He's aware of them? Well, he's aware of everything. As God the Son, he's aware of the goats too. Why bother to say, I know my sheep? Well, he's saying, I love them. I have a relationship with them. They have my special love. And so to say, God foreknows the elect, saying he set his love on them before they did anything, in advance So the foreknowledge of God the Father, they are elect according to his foreknowledge. He sets his love on them and choosing them by the sanctifying work of the Spirit. And this is his positional work by which he sets us apart from the world into Christ when we believe the gospel. And that brings the obedience or submission of Jesus Christ and sprinkling of his blood. This is what conversion is. I bow my knee to Christ, and I look to Him alone to save me. I trust Him alone to save me. But the reason why I do that is because the Father has elected me. The Holy Spirit has sanctified me. And my response, created by God, is to submit to the gospel of Christ and to have His blood applied to me, forgiving my sins, counting me righteous. But that's just one verse, the work of the three persons of the Trinity. A glorious thing. So, just I want to pause here and and give even another blessing I hope this sermon brings to you. When someone says to you, Oh, you know, the word Trinity is never in the Bible, I hope you'll first just chuckle. Yeah, the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, but the Trinity is all over the Bible. The fact of the Trinity is all over the Bible in and through the Bible, woven in by the revelation of God. And the word Trinity just describes what is in the Bible. So redemption is Trinitarian. Creation of the church is Trinitarian. Turn back to Matthew chapter 16. Why you say we were just there not too awfully long ago. That's true. So it should be familiar stuff. Matthew 16 and verse 18. So Peter has confessed the deity of Christ, and Jesus says, I say to you that you are Petros, and on this Petra, the confession you just made, I will build my church. So who creates the church? Pastors and overseers and deacons? Who creates the church? Councils and denominations and and polling committees? Jesus creates the church. I will build my church. Ah, but here's the thing we're looking at more closely now. How does Jesus build his church? Turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 8. We'll need to put these verses together, so uh, keep your arms and legs inside the car at all time, and we'll all get to the destination together. So how does Jesus build his church? What does he do to do that? Mark 1, verse 8, John the Baptist says... I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He will baptize you. Who? All of the believers. Like he, John baptized all of his followers with water. Messiah will baptize all of his followers with not just water, but with the Holy Spirit. This is something he can do that John can't do. So what does that have to do with the creation of the church? We'll keep, keep tracing this out with me. Turn to Acts chapter 2. And so, Jesus says there's, there's no church when Jesus is, is walking the earth. It's something He'll make in the future. John says He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. What does this have to do with the church? Well, in Acts 1, Jesus has been teaching for weeks, and He ascends to the right hand of God. And on the day of Pentecost, these people start speaking in languages they've never learned. And pastors by say, what is this all about? And Peter explains... And here's the heart of his explanation after going through some Scripture that points to Christ's resurrection and the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 32, This Jesus, God, raised up again, God the Father, raised up God the Son, to which we are all witnesses, therefore having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you both see and here. So, what does that mean? This is all part of the redeeming plan of God. Part of the plan was to Jesus, as Jesus says in John 17 God gave him the elect to come and save, to give them eternal life. He comes and dies for their sins. But that's not all. God accepts his sacrifice. That's not all. Because of what Jesus did, Jesus receives the promise of the Holy Spirit. And so he pours out the Holy Spirit on his people here. And and what does he create by doing that? The church. This is how he builds his church. John the Baptist said he will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And now we learn that this baptism in the Holy Spirit is what creates the church. And later in chapter 11, Peter says that's what this was. This was the baptism that Jesus had uh, fulfilled, uh, uh, foretold, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. That is what forms the church. The outpouring of the Spirit, which Christ won the right to do by His obedience to death on the cross. And another verse that settles that, 1 Corinthians 12.13. 1 Corinthians 12.13, to this very divisive church, Paul says for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body whether Jews or Greeks whether slaves or free and we were all made to drink from one spirit this is why it's such a viciously false doctrine to teach that some spirit some Christians are spirit baptized and some are not that is a false doctrine if they're not baptized then they're not in the body of Christ and if they're not in the body of Christ they're not saved they don't have the Holy Spirit, they're not saved. But who would Jesus baptize with the Holy Spirit? All his followers. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? It's what creates the church. Who's, who then is baptized with the Holy Spirit? All of us who believe in Christ. Now, I would translate this a little differently. I would say, in one spirit, we were all baptized, because I don't believe the Spirit is the baptizer. It's Jesus who's the baptizer. Like John said, He will baptize you. The Spirit is the medium not water, not any other created element, but the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus baptizes us. He pours out the Holy Spirit, and by that we are constituted the body of Christ. So, the creation of the church is Trinitarian. God the Father sends the Son. To redeem the elect. The Son does exactly what the Father sent him to do. And on his ascension, the Father grants the promise of the Holy Spirit, and the Son pours that out on these believers on the day of Pentecost, thus creating the church. The church is created by the Trinity. So, redemption is Trinitarian, creation of the church is Trinitarian, the unity of the church is Trinitarian. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I wonder when we read that passage, did you notice the Trinity in the passage we read from Ephesians 3.14 through chapter 4 and verse 6? So now let's look at Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Did you notice this? So verse 3 says being diligent to keep the unity of the Spirit in in the bond of peace. So what that means is each church, like the Ephesian church, like our church, has an objective unity that has been created by the Holy Spirit. We have the grounds for unity given by God. And so Paul says "You, you be diligent to keep those bonds, to keep that unity well, what unity are you talking about? What unity is that? Verses 4 through 6. There is one body. Well, we just read about that in 1 Corinthians 12, didn't we? The body of Christ we're baptized into in the Spirit. There's one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling. Yes, Paul said, we're all made to drink of one Spirit. So, You don't have a different Holy Spirit than I have. If we have the Holy Spirit at all, we've got the same Holy Spirit. The same Spirit dwells in the heart of every Christian. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Who's that Lord? That's the Lord Jesus. As I've taught you, when Paul says Lord by itself, he usually means Jesus. And we've all got the same Jesus. All Christians worship and are saved by trusting in calling on the name of the one and only Lord Jesus Christ. One Spirit, one Lord, and then verse 6, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Every Christian is a child of God the Father in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. So the basis of the unity of the church is Trinitarian. Verse 6, the distribution of gifts is Trinitarian. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 12 with me. The distribution of the gifts is Trinitarian. Now, we may think, well, that's something that's very divisive in the church, or at least it's kind of splitting. People have very different uh, uh, gifts, so where's the unity in that? One person is a teacher, one person serves, one person gives, one person encourages, all these different things. Well, what could hold all that together? Well, look at First Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 4 through 6. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. And there are varieties of workings, but the same God who works everything in everyone. So all these gifts and ministries are, Paul uses the brilliant analogy, the, the brilliant, what would this be, uh, metaphor of the body of Christ. One body, but many different working parts. And what holds them together? Well, it's one body, but also the one God gives all those parts. One, uh, one Spirit, one Lord Jesus, one God the Father. The same God distributes the gifts and determines who gets what. We don't. God does. So the unity of the church is Trinitarian. The distribution of gifts is Trinitarian. Christian life is Trinitarian. Now, we don't need to turn there, but Matthew 28, 19, what, what is that? It's what, what marks the beginning of our Christian life. Baptizing them into what? The name, singular, the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So I begin my life confessing that I am a a slave, I'm the property, I'm the possession of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The beginning of my Christian life is Trinitarian, but the living of my Christian life is also Trinitarian. Turn to Ephesians chapter 3, which we read just recently, but let's focus on this. And, and how Paul prays for their Christian life in a Trinitarian way. I might say in a nakedly Trinitarian way. Except it's, it, it is just so um, casual, I almost might say. It's like, he's not trying to make a point of it. It's just that when he thinks about God, clearly he thinks in Trinitarian terms. And so do they all. So do all the writers of these scriptures. So Ephesians 3.14, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, thank you, that's plain enough, from whom though every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, all Christians, Jew, Gentile, does not matter, that's a huge burden of this letter that we all have this, we're all one in Christ, we have the same blessings in Christ. He would give you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his Holy Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being firmly rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. So you see here he bows his knees before the Father, praying that the Spirit would strengthen us for the Son to settle down in our hearts that we might know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. So the Christian life is Trinitarian. Uh, Look at chapter 6. Had you ever noticed this? You say, oh, chapter 6, I know that. That's about the full armor of God. Well, did you notice this, though? Look at chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Finally, be strong in the Lord. So who's the Lord usually when Paul says just the Lord? That's the Lord Jesus. So be strong in the Lord Jesus and in the might of His strength. Put on the fall armor of God. Well, now, who's God usually when Paul just says God? The Father. So be strong in the Lord Jesus. Put on the fall armor given to you by God the Father so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of, this devil, of the devil. Now, who needs this? What, what, what percentage, let's say, of Christians will need this armor? 100%. This is the Christian life. We're born on a battlefield. We're born in wartime. No choice about it. Only choice is what side do we serve. So Christians want to have strength in Jesus, in our relationship with Jesus. We want an armor not forged by human works or wisdom, but an armor forged by God and given by God, and that's exactly what Paul's going to talk about. And then he details all these pieces, and what does he say after he's done with that metaphor? What does he say in verse 18? Praying at all times with all prayer and petition in the Spirit. So, I'm strengthened in Jesus, I put on the armor of God the Father, and I pray by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. My life as a Christian is Trinitarian. Another passage that, says that same, shows that same thing is Jude. So, turn to Jude chapter only, and look at verses 20 and 21 with me. He's warned us about heresy and pointed us back to the truth of God, warned us about heretics. Now How does he conclude all this? Verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. Had you noticed that? Praying in the spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, just as Jesus talked about in, in uh, John, John chapter 15, waiting for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. My Christian life, all of it, is Trinitarian. It's Trinitarian from start to finish. I'm not handed off from person to person. The whole the whole deity, God, Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit, is involved in each of our Christian lives. So the Christian life is Trinitarian. Worship is Trinitarian. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 2. Wonderful, wonderful chapter. Just to focus on a couple of things out of it. So, Paul had said we're dead in trespasses and sins. This is the, this is the necessary backdrop for salvation by sovereign grace. only kind of grace that saves, Ephesians chapter 2. So, Jesus came and preached the gospel to us, Paul says, and then in in verse 18, he says, for through him, that is Jesus, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. (laughs) So, how do we approach God to worship him? Through Jesus in the Holy Spirit to the Father. Worship is Trinitarian. He says some more about this in verses 20 through 22, that we've been built on the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom, that is in Christ, the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, the Lord Jesus, in whom, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So this right here, This church of Christ, the presence of the Trinity is what makes us a church. That we are in Christ, we approach God through Christ, we worship by the enabling of the Holy Spirit, and the person we worship is God the Father. God the blessed Trinity enabling us. This is the worship of God. Worship is Trinitarian. And look at the passage that was our call to worship. Ephesians 5 verses 18 through 20. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, for that that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, filled with God the Spirit, singing to God the Son, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So now you notice, and we, we studied and we studied this. this is not simply about personally being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and being a holy spirit, uh, holy spirit filled truck driver or short order cook or brain surgeon or or whatever. This is about our worship together, and in our worship we don 't come to worship drunk we don 't act like drunkards we 're filled with the holy Spirit, and when we 're filled with the Holy Spirit what Bubbles out of us, what flows out of us, is these songs sung in praise of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been doing today. And all of this is offered in His name to God the Father. Worship is Trinitarian. So I'm going to offer a, a little something on the side. People will ask then, so who do I pray to? Well, simply the Bible shows that prayer is always addressed and only addressed to God. Now, half of you are going to say, duh, and half of you are going to say, amen. And the half who says, amen, is from a Roman Catholic background. Because you come from a tradition that prays to everybody, except God much of the time. Angels, saints, and they say, well, this is not prayer, but they will close their eyes, beam out thoughts, assuming that and omniscient intelligence on the part of the person or angel that they're directing this to. And that's prayer. The Bible is absolutely death on the idea of offering worship to anything and anyone except God. So prayer is to be offered only to God. If we speak to the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, we're speaking to God. Never saints, never angels. There's no wiggle room here. But specifically in the Bible the usual pattern is what we've just seen prayer is usually offered to the father but we also see it's offered to the son Lord Jesus receive my spirit said who Stephen when he was being martyred and he saw Jesus and he prayed to Jesus and there are a number of passages that show prayer being offered to the Lord Jesus so In Scripture, prayer is offered to the Father, prayer is offered to the Son, prayer is always offered in the Holy Spirit. So, somebody's going to ask me, so do we pray to the Holy Spirit? And I'm going to give you a very clear wiggle answer. I'll be crystal clear. I'm going to wiggle on this in a crystal clear way. Now, one very well-known and rightly trusted Uh, pastor says in no uncertain terms, yes, of course, pray to the Holy Spirit. So what do I say about that? I, I, I just say two things, that there's no good reason not to pray to the Holy Spirit because He is God, but there's no examples of it in Scripture. So what do you make of that? I... I don't know. That's on my longer list of questions to ask if I even think remember any of my questions when I see the face face of Jesus. So if somebody told me he was praying to the Holy Spirit, would I rebuke him and say don't? And no, how could I? The Holy Spirit is God. And why would we not pray to the Holy Spirit? But the apostles never show it, they never say to do it, we never see them doing it, we don't see anybody doing it. Now, I do have a thought as to why that is. Um, but I don't have a a verse that says exactly this. Verses are what make me think this. (laughs) I think this because the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and from the Son, and His great delight is to glorify the Father and the Son. And His great delight is to lead our prayers to the Father and the Son. His great delight is not to lead our prayers directed to Him. Is it improper? No, it's improper to pray to an angel or a person. To the Holy Spirit? No, how, how, how could we say it's improper? We just say that there's not any examples for it. And so what the Holy Spirit himself has shown us is people praying to the Father and praying to the Son. So that's, that's my guideline. Uh, I hope that's helpful to you. If you have other questions, feel free to ask. But once you ask and you hear my answer, you're just going to hear a longer version of what I just said. So have at it if you want. And finally, the kingdom of God is Trinitarian. So the future is Trinitarian. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. That's where we'll close today. I think it's important for a pastor to just be able to say, I don't know, and he doesn't know. I don't know. Isaiah chapter 11. Then, he's speaking of the, the day of the Lord, the coming kingdom of the Lord. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. This is the Messiah, the son of David. The spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. So here is, Isaiah 9 has told us that he's the mighty God. Isaiah 7 says he's virgin born and the son of David. So the virgin born son of David who is mighty God sits on his throne and the spirit of Yahweh rests on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what his eyes see, nor render a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor. And he goes on to describe the idyllic paradise conditions of the kingdom of the Messiah, even savage animals living together in peace, let alone savage kingdoms. And he human beings. And then verse 9, they will do no evil nor act corruptly in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. Oh Lord, hasten that day. Hasten that day. Then it will be in that day that the nations will seek the root of Jesse. That's the son of David. That's the Messiah who will stand as a standard for the peoples, and His resting place will be glorious. And other scriptures show this same thing, that this will be an era of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will have been poured out on Israel, bringing their conversion. The Holy Spirit will rest, of course, on the people of God. And the Spirit of Yahweh rests on the Messiah King. And this is the knowledge of Yahweh, the knowledge of God, the knowledge of the Father, as well as the knowledge of the Son and the Spirit. So the messianic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, it also is Trinitarian. So everything that concerns us, you see we've traced from creation, through providence, through all of the events of the life of Christ, through the creation of the church, through the life of the Christian, now finally to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ, and what does it all have in common among other things? It's all Trinitarian. So it's all to the glory of, of the Triune God of Scripture, so this is beautifully put in the uh, what's called the Athanasian Creed uh, from uh, 450 a d We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance that 's a masterful putting of it. one God in Trinity. Trinity and unity. We don't mix the persons up with each other and we don't split the substance into three. One God in Trinity. The Christians stand before and under and live in this triune God. The Father elected us. The Son redeemed us. The Holy Spirit regenerated us and is the mode of our baptism and He sealed us. All the good things that we enjoy on life Are gifts of this one God. We are, every second we spend as children of God are because of the plan and the work and the ongoing work of this triune God. It's a result of his great plan and his great execution. So we give every atom of glory and honor to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's the Christian life. Now, Non-Christians also stand before and under this same triune God. And every good thing in their life is a loan to them from this triune God. And every moment of their life is spent under the judgment of this triune God. And one day they will stand before this triune God as their judge. And so in this day of grace, I say yet again, God has graciously brought you here to hear Christ preached one more time. You have no guarantee you'll ever hear it again. And I urge you, urge you to repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I don't even have to know you to tell you, you have no good reason not to do that right now. Because there is no good reason not to do that. If you want to know the true and living God on His terms, this is He. Let us pray heavenly father we thank you for this your word this your revelation we thank you for its glory and its wisdom we're humbled by it and we're blessed and thrilled by it and we just do pray that you will each day and each moment teach us more and more to live in faith in you and in love for you and gladly and wholeheartedly to give every bit of glory to you in jesus name amen